ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. It will be on the screen as well, but today we're going to be we're going to be putting a bow on this series that we've been calling the Parallel Paradigm, and, and, and without going into all the details of how I arrived at that name, I, we, could, we could sum it up by saying that it's, a, it's just a fancy way of saying that our ministry should, should run parallel to the ministry that Jesus had when he was here. Our ministry should look the same. That's basically what that means, and, and this series has been based out of Luke chapter 4 and verses 18 and 19, and, and I'd like to, for us to take a look at that. We're actually going to start reading in verse 16, which won't be on the screen, so just listen until I get to verse 18. But it says, oh, does anybody need a handout before I read that? Everybody got one? Nice, nice. Okay, Luke 4, starting in verse 16, and he, and he came to Nazareth, that's Jesus, where he had been brought up. Okay, so this is essentially his, his home church, we could say. And, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah. And, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And everyone in that room that was listening to that knew that Jesus had just said a mouthful. They, they would have understood that that prophecy from Isaiah 61, it was a prophecy about and was pointing to the Messiah, and there Jesus sits going, yeah, you know the one you grew up with? I'm the guy. Right? And, and Jesus was also laying out, though, the itinerary for where his ministry was headed. And, and because we have the Gospels to look back on, we can see that he did exactly what he said he was going to do and was prophesied about him. And he went to those specific groups of people that are mentioned here in Luke 4. 18 and 19. But what we've been asking ourselves is, what if Jesus wouldn't have come in the first century? What if, what if he came in the 21st century? What if he came today, that prophecy is still sitting there back in Isaiah 61 about him just waiting to be fulfilled? Who would these people be that, that he's ministering to? And, and we've sought to answer that question each week. And this morning what we're going to seek to do is, is answer two questions as we're concluding this series. And it's first of all, what have we learned? And then secondly, where do we go from here? It, God is, man, he's taught us some incredible things in, in, our, in our time. And this study has just, to me at least, it has seemed to go so quickly. It, it seems like yesterday we were talking about preaching the gospel to the poor. And and, 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 and we did that. We, we, God was, we talked about that, and God was tugging on our hearts about the poor. And then the next week, we saw how God had sent us to heal the brokenhearted. And then it was to preach deliverance to the captives, and God did his thing there. But now we're moving further and further away from talking about the poor that we were talking about. And we're getting further and further away from the brokenhearted that we were talking about. And I know how it goes sometimes. Sometimes we just kind of get on 
overload just a fuzz, and, and we can't quite assimilate all the truth that we're getting, and, and so I think it's important for us as we're, as we're putting a bow on this series this morning to just kind of look back over our shoulder a little bit and see what the Lord has taught us and some of the truths that he's rocked us with over these last several weeks. Now, obviously, we, we won't be able to go into all of them, and, and, and just about every point was rocking me personally, but, but there are some things that if we don't nail down, we may find ourselves just kind of casually drifting away from and moving on to the next thing and learning the next thing. And, and so this morning, let's just, let's just pull together and, and, and let God remind us of some of the incredible things that God has taught us over the last couple months from his word. And so Roman numeral number one is, is what have we learned? What, what have we learned? First of all, letter A, we've learned that we have a responsibility to see the world from the mountain of reality that exposes it for what it is, rather than viewing it from the fair garden we seek to create for ourselves. And, and if you, you've missed, and if you've missed some of the messages in this series, that may seem like a strange statement to you. But I'll fill you in so it makes a little bit of sense. Some of this terminology is from an excerpt from a letter from a guy named Cyprian to his friend Donatus. And both of these guys are they're famous in church history. But, but I want you to listen again to what Cyprian says to Donatus in this letter, because I find it very sobering and very profound. He says, this seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it, and here's the terminology, from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines... But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Bandits on the high roads, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please applauding crowds, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. And, and, and listen, from the fair garden that I create for myself, in this fair garden, I don't have to see the world for what it really is. And if I don't see the world for what it really is, then I don't have to think about it. And if I don't have to think about it, then I don't have to grieve about it. And if I don't have to grieve about it, then I don't have to do anything about it. I can just sit back and try to create more comfort for myself in my own little world in my own fair garden. I don't have to adjust my life. I don't have to adjust my lifestyle. I can just focus on being comfortable. Or to use the biblical term for it in Revelation 3.17, I can just focus on being lukewarm. And what we've seen is God has called us to something different than creating a comfortable little fair garden for ourselves that has all to do with our comfortable lives and pleasure in our lives. You know, I don't know how it works for y'all exactly, but I, I have a pretty good idea, I think, because I know how it works for me. I know that I wake up every single day with an incredible compassion and a concern for me. Morgan has never had to come in in the morning and say, hey, just a quick reminder, just think of yourself today. Just, she's never had to do that. 
You know, I, I wish she would, but, but she's, she's never had to do that. I don't need anybody to remind me to think about me. Now, I may not be much, good at much, but I'm killing it when it comes to that. But, but then every once in a while, I'll have, this, I'll have this great moment where God is working on my heart, and he's, he's broadening my heart to include compassion for every person in the universe that shares my last name. And then there are other times where I'm on this mountaintop experience and I have care and compassion for everyone on the globe that I like and that likes me back, <laughs> right? right? And I don't know if anybody, you guys, if you guys can relate to that, but, but that's basically the fair garden that we have for ourselves. And, and when our hearts get really broadened out, it really doesn't stretch too far in most cases. And over the last couple months, what we've been trying to do is just, just rattle our cages a little bit on that. Get ourselves up out of that fair garden long enough to ascend to the mountaintop of reality and begin to do what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 and look at the fields and see what's really out there. So, so listen, as, as we come to the conclusion of this study, let's... Let's not just get back into our fair garden and pretend that everything is just wonderful out there because, man, it's a real bad world, Donatus. It's, it is a real bad world, and God has called us as the body of Christ to see it and view it for what it actually really is. Secondly, letter B, we've learned that we have a responsibility to minister to the needy people of the world using the same job description that Jesus had when he was here. We've learned that we have a responsibility to minister to the needy people of the world using the same job description that Jesus had when he was here. And I want to make sure that we never move away from this. This is more than just a, a little series that we had to, to fill some space and to fill some time and give us something to do on Sunday mornings. It, what we're trying to do is, is point toward what God has in the future for this group of people that is the, called the body of Christ that meets in this place. We've got a job description that's the same job description that we see in Luke chapter 4. Because in, in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 7 it records a conversation that was going on between the Father and in the sun just before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is actually an incredible passage if you've ever seen it for what it, really, for what it really is. It's a really cool what has taken place. And, and Jesus here in this passage is talking to the Father and he's talking about the fact that he understands that the Father had prepared a body for him, an earthly physical body, and that he was getting ready to come to this planet and Jesus understood very well that when he grew and he began his ministry, he understood exactly what his job description was going to be. It would be all the things that we've been seeing from Luke chapter 4. It would be to preach the gospel to the poor. It would be to heal the brokenhearted. It would be to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He understood that very well. That was the will of the Father through that body. But what God has taught us that, that was, that is that that was not the end of the Father's plan to use the body of Christ. What happened after Jesus ascended back to the Father, 
is the Father prepared another body for God to minister through? In Ephesians 1, and 23 tells us that that body is us. <laughs> the church, we are the body of Christ. And the fact is this morning that Jesus is still wanting to minister to the needy people of the world and Jesus does minister to them in every place in the body of Christ where there's a group of people who have the anointing, the filling, and the leading of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of the Lord is going to anoint that group of people to follow the same job description that, God, that Jesus carried out when he was in body number one. And now he's just using body number two. You understand that? And if the Spirit of God leads us and is anointing us and filling us, it's going to be to carry out that exact same ministry. And we're going to find ourselves giving attention, just like Jesus did, first of all, to the poor. Do you remember what God was teaching us about the poor? Don't forget them, y'all. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 2. 25,000 people die a day across the world from starvation even in 2022, we're still dealing with poverty. If Jesus was here to minister today, what would he be doing about that? We've looked at the brokenhearted, people that have broken hearts because of death and disease and divorce and disappointments and, and all these things that came as a result of sin. We've got a responsibility to these people. We've looked at the captives of the world. I showed you a, I showed you a video it was a, a people on this planet that are what's called bonded slaves. And we focused on that. But man, we didn't even hardly get to touch on sex trafficking and, and sex slaves and things of that nature. You don't think God still cares about those people in the 21st century like he did in the first? We talked about the blind. And, and like always, we looked at the physical issue, talked about how 77% of blindness in our world some say as high as 90 percent of blindness is preventable and fixable and their physical blindness is the same as their spiritual blindness in the sense that we have access to what they need and and the problem is they don't the bruised is who we talked about next the bible teaches us that jesus was bruised for our iniquities Iniquities came into the world when sin entered into the world, and man, it bruised us in a major way, and Jesus wants to set at liberty them that are bruised. And, and each week, we've been going through all these groups of people, and we've seen that, that we've got to give this stuff attention while there is still time, while it is, as we talked about last week, still the acceptable year of the Lord. Last week, we talked about the fact that we're, we're living in the last of the, of the last days concerning the acceptable year of the Lord. And what we're getting ready to move into, though, is what the Bible calls the day of vengeance of our God. And we need to understand that, that things are going to change. And he's going to set right all the injustices of the world. But right now, he set us up as the body of Christ in a period of time when people can still accept him, people can still call upon the name of the Lord to save them. It is not the day of vengeance yet. And he commissioned us to do that. 
And, and, and so each week, we, God has been teaching us about these different people groups and the responsibility that we have to these people. And we've got to understand that the, that the same job description that Jesus had when he came in his physical body is the same job description that he's given us in his spiritual body. And we've got to set ourselves to that for the remainder of our days during the acceptable year of the Lord while there's still time. And then letter C. We've learned that, that we have a responsibility to meet the needs of people spiritually that begins with meeting the needs of people physically. We've learned we, need to, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of people spiritually that begins with meeting the needs of people physically. All these people that I just talked about, the poor and, and the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised, listen, all of those physical things, they're just representative of a bigger spiritual thing that they have the the world's problem is not that it doesn't have enough food to eat the world's biggest problem is its spiritual poverty the fact that we're separated from god and we're all spiritually as bankrupt as we can be but there's a lot of poor people that that jesus loves and, and that jesus would minister to so that he could point them to the spiritual good news that's how he operated and, and, and the point is is that with all these people groups that that we talked about we've got a responsibility to do something physically so that we have the opportunity to do something spiritually we we we, we just want to preach deliverance because we know that second timothy two twenty six says that the whole world has been being held captive by satan at his will, and, and that's true. And because we know that verse, we just want to slap people over the head with that thing. But how in the world are we going to ever going to get that message to people that are in physical captivity if we're not doing all that's within us to get them physically delivered from that? So yeah, we have a, a responsibility first and foremost to meet their spiritual needs, but we're not going to get there without meeting those physical needs in many cases. And, and then letter D, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of people globally that begins with meeting the needs of people locally. We have a responsibility to meet the needs of people globally that begins with meeting the needs of people locally. All, all of these people that we've talked about, when, when we get out of the fair garden and we see what's going on out there globally, man, that thing is overwhelming. And, and, and we do have a responsibility globally. But if we're ever going to impact the world on a global level, we've got to impact the world on a local level. Because what tends to happen is we have, a, have such a focus for what's going on all over the world, and, and well, we should, but we tend to focus on what's going on globally and what are we going to do about that almost to the exclusion of what's going on locally. And we ignore what's going on in our own area. And, and what we've been trying to learn through this study is that, that the poor and the brokenhearted and the blind and the bruised people, they're not just thousands of miles away on the other side of the earth. They're our neighbors right across the street. They're people that we sit next to at the office. 
They're our own family members. They're our friends. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth to find people that God is all about ministering to. I want to give you a quote by a guy named Oswald J. Smith. I want you to listen to this closely. The light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. The light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. If there's going to be a beacon that, that's going to shine to the other sides of the earth like we've been called to do, do you understand that that's going to have to shine right there in front even brighter? It's like we want to glamorize the global aspect of it. Well, did you hear old such and such is going to Africa? Man, they're a stud for Jesus, aren't they? But when it comes right here to next door, it's not so glamorous. It's just kind of a yawn, you know? And what we need to understand is, is that we have got the responsibility to meet the needs of people spiritually, and, and that begins with meeting their needs physically. And we've got to understand we've been called by God to meet the needs of people globally, and that begins with what we do here locally. And then number two on your outline, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I couldn't in good conscience just fire up a, a, another series or dive into another book of the Bible and not circle back around to all this stuff just one more time to just nail down what God has been graciously teaching us over the last couple months. Because they're, they're just things that we can't ever move away from as a church. But, but where do we go from here? And in letter A, we must respond with action performance. Letter A, we, we must respond with action performance. In, in James chapter 1, in verse 22, he says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Have you ever taken a second to process that verse? So, so many of y'all have been faithful during, during this series. And man, I genuinely believe that God has been at work in, in your lives. And he definitely has been in mine throughout this process. But, but, as we see, but as we sit here and as we hear the word of God and, and maybe start seeing some things in ways that we've never seen it before and we're convicted by it, that can also mess us up a little bit. It, it, it can set us up, according to this verse, it can set us up for self-deception. If after hearing all the things that we've heard, we don't do anything about it. You know, one of the problems with, with the period of time that we're living in that we often refer to as the Laodicean church period of history that we're living in that's defined for us in Revelation 3, one of the problems is that believers in the last days, they think they're in one place in their life spiritually, and God sees them in a completely different place than they, than they see themselves. And this verse, I believe, gives us some great insight as to how we got there. The deception came because we've heard so much and now we know so much. And he says, hearing is not the issue. The issue is what we do with what we hear. 
And if we, and, and if we do what we need to do with, with what we heard, he, he, said, what, he said if we don't do what we need to do with what we've heard, what he says is, is that we, we deceive ourselves. We see ourselves in one place, and Jesus sees us in a totally different place. And then the next verses, verses 23 through 27 of James 1, he says, For if any be a hearer of the word and, and not a doer, here's what he's like, he says. He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or, or in a mirror, where he beholdeth himself, okay? He's looking there and he, see, he sees all those gross hairs, you know, he's, he's, he's seeing the eye boogers and, and he's, he's grown out the old unibrow, you know. He's done all that and then he goes his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He doesn't do anything about what he saw in that mirror. Verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty the book you're holding in your hands this morning, the perfect law of liberty, and, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And, and then he goes into verse 26, talking about some issues that we've also talked about in this study. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Okay, what is it? To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So, so, so it's great that God has been at work in our lives. I couldn't be more excited about that. And it's, and it's great that we've learned things. And it's great that we've been under conviction. But... If we don't become doers of the word with what we've heard, man, this has been one whale of a waste of two months, hasn't it? We should have just skipped this and went to the gym and just had some food together. Like, what is, what is, you, don't need to listen to, you don't need to listen to me flap my gums. Okay, so where do we go from here? We've we got to put ourselves into action, being doers of the word and not hearers only. And then, letter B, we must develop compassion permanence. We must develop compassion permanence. First of all, we must respond with active performance, and then we must develop compassion permanence. You know, there's this funny thing that's true of, of the way that babies are. You can, you can take a, a ball or you can take a, a toy and you can put it in front of their face, and, and as long as it's in front of their face, they're just, you know, they're just enamored with that thing. Right, but as soon as you remove it, it does. It, it, it's like they say it doesn't exist to them. They they say they don't have object permanence. They don't understand that object exists permanently. It's out of my sight, so it's gone now. In in 21st century Christians, we're we're kind of we're kind of like that, in that we don't have compassion permanence. But it, but as but as long as you know, every single Sunday we come in here and talk about the poor, well, then we can keep it on the radar. But because we can't put that in front of you every Sunday so that I can preach the whole counsel of God, what's going to happen when we're not talking about the poor each week anymore? It, what, what, what's, we can't put that in front of you 
every Sunday? What's going to happen when we can't bring up the brokenhearted each week or the bruised each week? And my fear is that we're going to run back to that fair garden where so many of us, self-included, have gotten so comfortable and start thinking about me, my, and mine all over again and be like it never even happened. It's got to be stamped in our eyes, and we got to see it the way that God sees it. So, so how do we get to where we have compassion permanence? I, I, I do think that most of us here truly and genuinely want that. We just get messed up in the process sometimes of how we get it. Because we think that we get compassion by focusing on people, the poor and the brokenhearted that we've talked about. We, we think that we get it from focusing on people. And yeah, we, we've got to see them. But we're never going to develop compassion because of focusing on people. Compassion comes as a result of focusing not on people, but focusing on God. And the result of that is going to be compassion. Okay, let, let me share with you the three great passions that we must possess. And I think what I'm saying will make sense to you. First of all, a passion for, uh, number one, passion for God himself. Passion for God himself. And, and, and the reason I put for God himself in parentheses is to, is to clarify what I mean. I'm not talking about having a passion for what God can do for me. This, that, that, that is Laodicea, folks, if there ever was Laodicea. I, I'm very passionate about the things of God. I'm not talking about the things of God. I'm not talking about the gifts of God. I'm not talking about the blessing of God. I'm talking about being passionate for God. And there's all the difference in the world between those two statements. You got a guy like the Apostle Paul, a guy who had several personal encounters with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The first, if you'll recall, he's on the road to Damascus where Jesus shows up in this blazing, blinding light and blinds him for a three-day period. Another time, according to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, he was caught up into the third heaven to see things that he said would be against the law to tell you what I saw. The guy that was used by God to pen half of our New Testament. And yet listen to the cry of his heart according to Philippians chapter 3 in verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul says, God, I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection and I even want to know the fellowship of your sufferings because I know that in suffering, I begin to know you more intimately and become more conformed into your image. I don't care if it's not an easy road. What it's all about is fellowshipping with you because I know through that I'll come to know you. What about David? We all, we, most of us know he was, of course, the man after God's own heart. He was, he was a man that was passionate, not for the things of God, but for God. Psalm 27 and verse 4, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire 
in his temple. Oh God, that's the one thing that I want to see you and to behold you in all of your fullness and all of your glory. Psalm 63 verses 1 and 2, David says, Oh God, thou art my God, early or earnestly will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee. He says it's like I'm in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, like a desert land where you're just begging for a drop of water. That's how his soul feels, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. He was, he was earnestly seeking and had a passionate desire, so much so that it was like he's in this hot desert, desperately wanting water, not for all the blessings, that God can give and all the gifts that God can get and all the trouble that God can pull him out of. But for God himself, his desire was for God, not for what God could do for him. And what I want you to see is all of these people that God has used so much throughout the years. These are all people that, that were passionate about God himself. And that's where this thing begins, with just being totally consumed and passionate for God. And then that passion for Him leads us to something else. It leads us to what we could call co-passion. That leads us to what we could call, number two, co-passion. Listen, this is where we begin to share with God what He's passionate about. And man, that's so, that's so important. Because when we get passionate about God, we get passionate about the things that He's passionate about. And you begin to understand that the theme of the entire Bible, it isn't about us. You realize that? It, but it's first and foremost about the glory of God. Then you know what He's passionate about when you understand that. You get passionate about God's glory. You share in that same passion. And that's the reason that you see David say a lot of the things that, that David says, because he got passionate for God and he began to share in the passion for God's glory. That's why he says in Psalm 69.9, it's why he says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He's saying, oh God, I want you to be glorified so much that when your name is blasphemed and your name is defamed, the way that falls on you, it falls that way on me too. And I just feel like I'm being consumed by this thing. In Psalm 119, verse 139, David says, My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. They're not living according to this book, and I feel like I'm being consumed by it. When's the last time your passion so consumed you because of the way the people of this planet have forgotten God's words? He says in Psalm 119 and verse 136, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. David says, I so desperately want to see the people of this planet follow you, Lord, because I want you to get the glory that you deserve. And you know what David's describing? Co-passion. 
He wants what God wants. He's passionate now about what God's passionate about. The theme of the book that we hold in our hands is God's glory. And when we're sharing in the passion that the Lord has, it leads then to number three, compassion. Compassion. It begins with passion for God. It doesn't begin with passion for people. It begins with passion for God. It transcends into co-passion with God and then compassion for the people of this planet. In Matthew chapter 9, in verse 36, talking about Jesus, it says, when, when, he, when he saw the multitudes, he He comes up to the mountain of reality, if you will, to see what's really going on. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And and that's where we've got to be as we come out of this study, y'all. We've got to let the Lord develop compassion in us. We've got to see the people of this world differently, not just because it's the focal point of a Sunday message, but because it got embedded into the fabric of who we are because of our passion for God and the passion we share with him to see him get his glory. Then all of a sudden we start to see the people of this planet differently than we've ever seen them before. And when we begin to see the people of this planet differently, we start hearing voices in our head. Here's what we start hearing. You start hearing stuff you never heard before. You start hearing the Father above say things like he said in Isaiah 6 and verse 8, like you never heard it before. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You start to hear the people below us, like the story of of the rich man and and Lazarus. The rich man was, was saying from hell, send somebody to my brother so they don't have to come to this place. And you know what? When you begin to get compassion, you hear the voice from God above us. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You hear the voices of those below us. Will you go to the lost loved ones and, and tell them so they don't have to go to this awful place? And then like Paul, he, he gets this vision as he comes into Troas. A, a man of Macedonia is crying out to him, come over here and, and help us. And when we begin to have compassion, not only do we hear the voices, uh, the voice of the Father above us, the voice of those in hell below us, but we get, begin to hear the voice of the people all over the world beside us. Almost 8 billion of them saying, come over and help. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about compassion, compassion permanence. And it's something that God's going to have to develop in us so that we can keep it in our sights and so that after Sundays it will continue to be a concern for us. So we must develop compassion permanence and then Letter C, we must present mission proficients. We must present mission proficients. We, we must be very proficient when it comes to this thing of the mission. Now, now listen, there, there are some abilities that you've got to possess if you're going to be used of God. 
And, and some of us in this room don't have the abilities that are necessary to be used by God. There are, there are three great abilities that we must possess. There are three great abilities that we must possess in order to be used, but it's not the abilities that you're thinking of. The first one is usability. Usability. The great abilities you need. I'm not talking about skill. I'm not talking about talent. I'm not talking about gifts. Because some of the most gifted, talented, and skilled people on this planet are not used by God because they've never presented the great ability of usability. God always uses vessels that are clean. You, you know, some of you guys like to, like to go to buffets, you know. Some of you guys are heading to Golden Corral after this. I really hope you don't, but some of you might. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, you get in line and you, 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 get to, you pick your fork, you pull out that fork and you pick one that's boogered up. I think I've said booger twice now. I'm at my quota for the year. The... You pick, <laughs> you pick up that, you pick up that nasty, you, that nasty thing, and you're not keeping that dirty one. You're not going to use that dirty one, are you? And what I want you to understand is that God wants to use you, but first of all, you've got to be usable. And, and, and some of you may have been praying throughout these last two months as we have been covering this topic. You guys may have been praying. Oh, God, use me to have a ministry like your ministry. That's what I want. And that's a great way to pray. But maybe a better way to pray is, is oh, God, would you make me usable? Because if, if you're usable, he will use you. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, and these promises he's talking about are the promises from chapter 6, the fact that God will be our God and we'll be his people, and even more than that, he'll be our father and we'll be his sons and daughters. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And, and some of us are praying for God to use us and and yet you're hanging on to crud in your life and the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And you can pray to God all you want. Use me, God. I want to be used. But until you get usable, until you've cleansed yourself of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, you're wasting your breath. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use or suitable to be used by the master and prepared unto every good work. There's a great ability that you must possess if you're going to be used by God that has nothing to do with skill and has nothing to do with talent. It has to do with very simply 
usability. A second great ability you must possess is availability. Number two, a second great ability you must possess is availability. God always uses vessels that are willing. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, I quoted that a minute ago, God saying, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Listen, then said I, here am I, send me. He, Isaiah said, send me, I'll go. And you know what? God did. And, and I promise you, if you're usable and you're available, God will use you like crazy. But there's a third great ability you must possess if you'll be used by God. And it's number three, it's dependability. Dependability. The fact is, y'all, God uses vessels that he can trust. Isn't that what you do? He uses vessels that he can trust. Now, now some of you, out of the sincerity of your heart, may, may have been praying that God will use you to carry out a ministry that's a parallel paradigm to the ministry of Jesus. And, and what I'm trying to say to you is, is that if you're hanging on to junk in your life while you're praying for God to use you, God's saying to you, clean up your act and I will. He's looking for people who are available. The Father is at work all around us every day, and he's looking for someone that's willing, someone that will open their mouth and step through that door. But some of you have come to the place in your life where God can't trust you. And the issue I'm about to mention is not a drumbeat every week if you are a guest with us, but for me to leave this obvious point out in the midst of this series I would be doing you and God an injustice to not talk about it. But in Luke 16, 11, Jesus talks about who he can't trust. And he says, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Unrighteous mammon are phys they're physical riches. But, but you can see by the terminology that God doesn't view those as true riches at all. True riches are souls. Those are, those are people. So some of the kind of people he's talking about are poor and brokenhearted and bruised and blind. God says, if I can't trust you with something as measly as money, you think I can trust you with something that's as precious to me as the souls of men? We've been commanded to lay by in store as God has prospered us. God says, I'm going to provide for your needs. All I'm asking is that you provide a portion of that and give it as a love gift back to me. And take the rest of that that I've trusted you with and be a wise steward of that. And listen, I did not write the Bible. I'd just been called to preach the full counsel, and I can't not bring that up. And I care too much about you to not tell you what may be holding you back from God trusting you with true riches. If you present to God usability, you present to God availability, you present to God dependability, then I can promise you he will compensate for any inability that you have. These are the great abilities you've got to possess. And then lastly, letter D, we must trust supernatural providence. We must trust supernatural providence. Listen, y'all, the poor, the brokenhearted, the blind, the bruised of this world, you take the statistics that you've looked at, and over, over these last couple months, we've been looking at all these statistics, and my goodness, they're overwhelming as can be. Like, what, what could little old me be doing about that? It feels like, what could I even bring to the table that could possibly put a dent in that thing? And, 
And in Matthew 14, Jesus has been preaching, and he's been preaching for quite a while. So the disciples are getting concerned about the crowd. He's saying, man, maybe we should go get them some food. I think these brothers out here are about to get a little hangry. Maybe we, should go, maybe we should go get them a little bit of grub. And Jesus says, they, they don't need to go anywhere. Just give them something to eat. Now, there's 5,000 people in the crowd, and Jesus knows they don't have money to go buy food for all those people. And, and in Mark chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus asks a very significant question. He asks them, how many loaves have ye? He says, what do you have? Well, they said, well, man, we got, we got five loaves and we got, we got two fishes. But what are they amongst so many? What good is that? That's just a drop in the bucket of this huge crowd out here. Jesus says, what do you have? Man says, how does what I have have anything to do with the big problem? Because what I have doesn't even compare to the problem. But do you know the question that they're leaving out? The miracle working power of God. God knows who you are. He knows what he gave you. You know what he's looking for? For you to simply offer your five loaves and two fishes that you call your life. And offer to him what you do have and trust him for the miracle. It's his world. We're the body of Christ. And he wants to minister to the world. And his question to us is, what do you have? And that's what we offer. And Jesus steps in and he adds to that the miracle. And he begins to do exceedingly, abundantly, all that we could ask or think. And that's what God wants to do with this group of people. Father, we, we, we come to you as, as we come to a conclusion in this series. And God, I, I, I am asking you and I'm begging you that we would never get too far removed from it. We, of course, have to move on to other things that you've revealed to us in your word, God. But, man, this is the, this is the, this is the essentials. This is the, this is the basics. If we don't get this down, God... We are, we are missing it. We are missing it so badly. I, I pray, God, that you would help those of us in this room. I pray you'd help us to be usable. God, yes, I pray that you'd use us, God, but may we be usable and may, may we boldly open our mouth to proclaim your truth. May we show up to you trusting you for, to pull off supernatural things to do a work through us, even if we're just bringing you a, a measly couple pieces of bread and a, and a couple fishes, God. If that's, that, that's all you've asked of us. You've never asked us to, to offer you more. Offer our lives down as to what do you have. And God, will you, you will use us based on the ways that you have entrusted us and gifted us. And you will do things through us that only you can do. But I pray, God, that we would be usable. I thank you for this group. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I ask you to stand with us, respond to the word of God as we sing.